Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you this morning. We know that you are with us. That you are with us by your word and by your spirit. We do pray that those two things would be active in this room this morning. that we might know and see the Son, so you might be glorified by us. We pray this in the strong name of Christ our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the holy and errant word of God. And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Though the grass withers... And the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Last week, we saw the inauguration of Christ's ministry. If you'll remember, and his coronation as king. He went to the river Jordan, where there John the Baptist baptized Jesus in the water. And when he was baptized in the water and came out, the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God came down upon him to empower him and equip him for the ministry that he was about to embark on. And then the voice of the Father echoed from the heavens, and the voice of the Father said that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And it's quite a scene. And you have the last of the Old Testament prophets there. You have the very Spirit of God. You have the Father from heaven all together joining their voices and commending that Jesus is who He says He is, that He's the Messiah, that He is the Savior, that He is the promised King. But then we're told that then, Matthew says, then, that is immediately after His baptism, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Maybe that shouldn't shock us because spiritual highs are often tested and tried. After blessing, temptation often comes calling. But this isn't 
as negative as it sounds. Because this is how God works to form and shape and test our character. We are tried. We are tested. Even Jesus had to be tested. Luke tells us that as Jesus was a small child, he says in the Gospel of Luke there in chapter 1, I believe, he says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature with God and with men. As Jesus and his humanity, he had to grow. He had to grow in knowledge. He had to grow in understanding. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, or he says later in the book that Jesus, quote, learned obedience through what he suffered. And none of this means that Jesus was in some way disobedient or that he was in some way imperfect. What it does mean is that he was proven to be obedient. He was proven to be obedient through these times of trial and these times of suffering. He demonstrates that he is perfect. And so here the Spirit is leading him into the wilderness. And Jesus will prove over and over that he is indeed who he is. In fact, we may say that it's not just the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness because Jesus goes voluntarily into the wilderness to be tempted and to be tried. He went willingly because He desired to glorify His Father. He desired to show that He understood the calling that was upon His life and to prove Himself, to be tempted and to prove Himself. To demonstrate his obedience, his commitment, his submission to the Father. And so he walks from these waters of baptism into a kind of spiritual battle royale in the wilderness. And as he does, all the universe hangs in the balance. All the universe. try to make it clear what is happening in this passage. This is not simply Jesus withstanding the temptation of Satan. That takes far too small a, a picture of what is occurring here in this temptation experience. Rather, what Jesus is doing is He is fulfilling what others did not and would not do. If you notice, all the texts that Jesus cites when He replies to Satan and Satan's temptations, all the texts are taken from the time that Israel was in the wilderness when it was wandering. And as Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, so Jesus is here in the wilderness for 40 days. And as Israel emerged from the waters of the Red Sea and heard this blessing from God from heaven where He was commending them and, and saying that they were His people. So Jesus emerges from the waters of baptism before He proceeds into the wilderness and hears this commendation from His Father. This is no mistake. Jesus is Israel personified here. But where Israel failed, Jesus has victory. He is the true Israel of God. The proven, faithful Israel. He has come to fulfill what Israel could not and would not do. He will be faithful to His Father until the very end. And He's proving it. 
He's not only pictured here as the true Israel. He's also pictured here as the second Adam. In this temptation, we have a kind of recapitulation of, of what happened in the Garden of Eden. And Adam is there, and Satan comes to him with temptation and approaches him and tries to get Satan to distrust God and to make his own way. And Adam gives in to that temptation. Adam was in the garden. And he could not endure the test. And now Jesus will be the second Adam in the wilderness. And he did. And by this, he sets in motion the very undoing of the curse of Adam that, that Adam brought in by his disobedience. That which Adam burdened the human race with through his failure, Jesus will free the human race with, from, with his success. He's the second Adam. And yours and my salvation could have been lost at any moment. At any moment. If Jesus had not proven himself. So as we think about Matthew chapter 4, this is no mundane scene. Everything is, is in the balance. Angels in heaven must have looked down with a little bit of fret and worry. What will happen here? There are three particular temptations that Satan places before Jesus in this passage. Would he rely upon the Word of God? Would he rely upon the work of God? And would he rely upon the will of God? Would he rely upon the Word of God, the work of God, and the will of God? So we're told in verse 3 that the tempter, Satan, came to Jesus and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you're the Son of God. In the Greek, Satan is not questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. Rather, he's assuming it. He, he, he's not questioning, he's just challenging Jesus. It's as if he was saying, you're the Son of God. Let's see it. Turn these stones into bread. Satan knows that Jesus can turn the stones into bread, and so do we. And it seems rather benign. Jesus is hungry, his stomach is empty, so why not turn these stones into bread? But Satan's crafty. He's absolutely sly. You notice that he tends more often than not to tempt in areas that are gray. Things that don't just pop out as scarlet red sins, but areas that we can justify ourselves and make the argument. This isn't that bad. In fact, this makes sense. God wouldn't want this, or at least... He wouldn't care. But in this simple challenge, there is the balance of the universe. It, 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 is, it is held in tension right here. This isn't simply about bread and filling the stomach. The, the question is, will Jesus rely upon the Word of God or will He abandon the Word of God for His cravings? And that's a temptation all of us are confronted with day in and day out. 
Will we submit ourselves to the Word of God? Or will we forsake the Word of God for our cravings? The Scriptures are clear about Jesus' path. The Word had laid it out. Turning these stones into bread would have been a detour off the path of forsaking of God's Word. How? Well, it's helpful to realize that this phrase that Satan uses is a phrase that's used again at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So in Matthew chapter 17, verse 40, the same phrase is hurled at Jesus, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. But this time, Jesus is on the cross. And this is lobbed at him. If you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross. And he could have. He could have in that moment, by his divine power, called the angels from heaven down, and they could have slain those Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross and taken him off the cross in a moment. If he had, all would have been lost. Because the word was clear. The Messiah, the deliverer of God, had to be the suffering servant. He had to suffer. He could not take a detour. He could not jump over the suffering and secure our salvation. He had to endure it for our sake. And it's the same path that Satan is now offering him here. Avoid the suffering by exercising your divine power. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. He won't give in to this temptation. No, as he says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He would obey the word of God, not his gut. Not his cravings. Not his longings, but the word of God. He would not abandon his mission that the Father had sent him upon by using his powers of deity to actually benefit himself. As Philippians 2 says, he set them aside. He did not grasp his deity as a thing to be used for himself. So Jesus parries the temptation of Satan with the most effective weapons he he quotes the Word of God, this very thing that he was dependent upon. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He, he jabs back at it. What a weapon. What a mighty weapon. And nations will spend hundreds of billions of dollars to to create defense for their country. I was looking up last night, the, most, the latest statistic I could find about the United States was back in 2015, the United States spent $598 billion on defense. To defend us from whom? Well, you could list maybe a few nations, you could list different terrorist groups. We have the greatest of all adversaries as Christians. The greatest. And we don't need nuclear weapons. 
We don't need machine guns or missiles. We don't even need arguments and treaties and complicated answers. We've been given the greatest and mightiest weapon there is. This book. The Word of God. It's the mightiest weapon there is. It's our sword to defend and to jab back the very Word of God. It is this sword that Jesus parries the attack of Satan with. And it is this sword that He lunges back with time and again as He confronts Satan here in the wilderness. You want to withstand temptation? Then you wield this weapon. That's what our Lord did. That's what He's given to you. Which means that we must know and love this book. Which means that we need to treasure this book. If we would withstand the temptations of our adversary, we must know what is contained here. Not just have it sit on our shelves and collect dust but actually be in it, drinking from it, eating it, studying it. How much stronger we would be as a body if we just all labored to know this book. We spent as much time reading the Bible as we did binging on Netflix and exercising and Practicing our golf swing and watching CNN and Fox News. Most of the temptations we give into are not because of the intensity with which they come upon us, but because we have not, with intensity, filled our minds and our hearts with God's Word. This Word will do you no good when temptation comes if you don't have it in your mind and have it in your heart. It must be there as a bulwark, as a ready defense, as a sword that can be wielded. Which means that you must read it. And memorize it and meditate upon it and study it and and know it and love it. It takes effort. It's daily, regular, prayerful study of the Word of God. But you want to do your soul a favor, then you bathe your soul in the Word of God. You want to stand against the schemes of the devil, then you fix your feet upon the Word of God. You want to combat evil thoughts, then you saturate your mind with the Word of God. You want to rein in a wandering heart, then you Fill it with the Word of God. This is our sword. This is our weapon. This was His sword. This was His weapon. And He withstood the attacks. It's always stuck with me when I was a brand new Christian. Back in the early 90s. Mid 90s. I remember a mentor of mine, he was telling us a story from the 80s. 
And he was talking about how he was asked to come to Romania to teach the Bible. And the Romanians there had asked him to teach the book of Romans. They'd heard about the book of Romans, but they had never seen the book of Romans. His Bibles were outlawed under a communist regime there in Romania. And so they asked him to come and to teach this book. And so he was planning on going and he told us about how they would meet in kind of these lofts of barns and there they would teach and they would talk about the Word of God. And, and he found out about a week before he left that he couldn't bring a Bible with him. They said it would be too dangerous. And he said what was fascinating about it was that the Romanians just assumed that he would have it memorized. If you had the book of Romans, you would have it memorized. And if you have the Bible, you would pour over it all the time. You would store it in your mind and store it in your heart as much as you could. Maybe we may not memorize the book of Romans. We're not very good at memorizing. I try, I work hard at it, see it as a spiritual discipline, but I'm not great at it. So I'll probably never have the book of Romans memorized. But just maybe we've taken our Bibles for granted. Just maybe we forget the powerful sword that we have been given from God on high because we have so many laying around our houses. a gift. Satan is no milquetoast adversary. He is relentless like a crouching lion just looking for an opportunity to devour. And so though Jesus fends him off with this first temptation by showing he will rely upon the Word of God, Satan quickly comes to him with a second temptation. He takes Christ to the city of Jerusalem. We're not sure if this happened in reality or was this just a vision that, that Christ had where Satan was taking him there to Jerusalem. But, but there, Satan sets Jesus on the top of the temple. And it's a very pinnacle. And Satan tempts him again with that same refrain, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You notice that Satan is no stranger to the Word of God. In fact, he knows it better than anybody else in this room. So he comes with the Word of God after Jesus has answered with the Word of God, and he challenges him with the Word of God. I used to have a seminary professor that would stand in front of the class as he was teaching us about different heresies and different cults, and he would say, he would hold up the Bible, and he would say, Bible, Bible, Bible. Everyone uses the Bible. And what he meant by that is, with any heresy or any cultic belief, you can find a proof text for it if you search hard enough in the Bible. You can make it do what you want it to do. You can make it say what you want to believe. Every heretic has used the Bible. And this is all the more reason to study it. 
or not be just a casual consumer of it. We must have the knowledge available to be able to say, is this true according to the whole counsel of the Word of God? Is this what the whole Word actually says? Or have you just ripped it out of context? Throw yourself down, Satan is tempting him. By this you will know whether he actually cares for you, whether God cares for you, the Father in heaven. If you are God's Son, He will come to your rescue. Isn't that what the passage says, Jesus? And it is. Jesus is unwilling to throw Himself down. Not because He doesn't believe that the Father would save Him. But because He knows that you and I and He in His God-man flesh should not tempt God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, He says. Why? Because testing is a way of gaining control. Of gaining control over God. God forbids Israel, as Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massah. Well, what's the alternative? Well, the very following verse, Deuteronomy 6, verse 17. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. The alternative to testing God is to simply trust and obey Him. That's our calling. We don't sit over Him. He sits over us. Our duty is not to test God, but to trust God. So we're to rely upon the work of God. He's promised. He's promised. And Jesus knows this. He's promised that, that if His Son was to fall, He would lift Him up so that He doesn't strike His foot on a rock. He's promised that. God has promised to work for His people. And so you trust and obey, for there's no other way. If you think about the armor of God that's detailed there in Ephesians 6. That Paul speaks about, he speaks about the sword that is the Word of God that you and I are to, to wield. But it's not just that. He, he also talks about the shield, doesn't he? And what is the shield? The shield is faith. And he says that by that shield of faith, we are able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. The shield of faith just quenches all the fiery darts of the evil one. They hit it, poof, they're gone. The shield of faith. He says, by this you resist the devil and, and he will flee from you. How? By Wielding the sword and picking up the shield of faith. So when you're tempted, you exercise faith. We believe. We believe in God's work, God's provision for us. He's promised, dear Christian, that anything you need, He will not keep from you. 
that He is working all things together for your good. He works for you. Can you trust that? I've said this to you before, but I think about it a lot, so I'm going to say it again. But the Christian's mind should be just a field littered, littered with outcroppings of Ebenezer stones. You know those Ebenezer stones that would be set up to remember what God has done in this place? Our, field should, our mind should be a field littered with outcroppings of Ebenezer stones. He worked for me there. And he was faithful there. And he worked there. And you remember that time where he worked there? And then you recall those. He's provided for us. He's secured us. He's safeguarded us. He's worked for us. All those little Ebenezer stones, they're, they're fuel for faith in the present. And when we recall such Ebenezer stones, it sends our adversary away with a double blow. Because our faith has been strengthened in the present and our adversary has been faced to has been forced to face his failures in the past. It's a double blow. You recall. Jesus will not test God. He will trust Him. He will rely upon the work of God. As He says. But Satan is not done. He comes with a third temptation. And now he scraps any idea of being subtle. He takes Jesus to a high mountain again. We don't know, was this a vision or was this reality? But on this high mountain, Satan shows all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, and he offers them to Jesus. And notice that he shows all the kingdoms and all their glory. This is how he always works. He gives you the shine. Shows you the good. Shows you the glory. And he hides what discouragements are there, what pains will be there. It just tantalizes. He offers these kingdoms to Jesus with one requirement. Verse 9. All these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Ah, here is the ultimate aim, isn't it? In fact, this is the ultimate aim of our adversary every single time he tempts any of us. That we would bow the knee to him instead of to God. Jesus had already been promised that the kingdoms were his. In Psalm 2, God the Father says to the Son, He says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. But Jesus knew that before that glory, there was a required cross. But Satan again is offering this temptation to say you can skip over the cross and just receive the glory. But you remember back to Jesus' baptism last week that when God the Father speaks from heaven... And he says those words, he's alluding to two different prophecies regarding the Christ. The one, that he would be the Davidic Messiah. And the second, that he would be the suffering Savior. And he brings them together and says, these are one person. 
The Davidic Messiah who would reign over all the kingdoms is also the same person as a suffering Savior, and it is my son. And now Satan is offering the Davidic kingship apart from the suffering Savior. He tempts. Will you take a shortcut, Jesus? And bypass the suffering. In doing so, you also bypass the will of God. It ends the same, doesn't it? He gets the kingdoms. He rules over all people. All nations and tongues and tribes are there before Him. But any moment we forsake the will of God, we are on a different path with a different end in view. God would want this for me. What does the Word of God say? What is God's will in this area? God would want me to be happy. What does the Word of God say? What's God's will for you in this area? God wouldn't want me to go through the suffering and the pain and the trial that would be included with this path. What does the Word of God say? What is God's will for you in this area? I have a right. I'm only human. My wife isn't making herself available to me. It's all based on how you interpret that word. There are nuances, aren't there? The IRS will never find out. It actually allows me to give a little more to the church. Minds can make some arguments time and again I make these sound arguments for giving in to temptation but those arguments must never win the day his will must the will of God revealed in the word of God must be the guide for the people of God so Jesus responds you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve even though he knows that that means enduring the cross. He turned away from easy glory to endure a cross. And the devil flees from him. Angels come to minister to him. Why? Because he is a true man. He's a true man. He has just suffered for 40 days. And so angels come to, to tend to him. Jesus resists the temptation. Thanks be to God. Because yours and my salvation hung in the balance. proves his willingness and commitment to rely upon the Word of God and the work of God and the will of God. And ultimately, he does so by relying upon the Spirit of God.
As we said last week, Jesus depended upon the Spirit. Notice what Satan is doing. is attempting him time and time again not to rely upon the Spirit, but to exercise his, his divinity, his raw divinity, to escape, to have an easier path, but he refuses. He'll rely upon the Spirit. He'll entrust himself to the Father and show himself to be the better Adam and the true Israel. In his temptation, he did not take the easy way out. Many wrongfully think that this temptation was easy in some regard for Jesus because He is God. He is fully God. And as fully God, He couldn't sin. And that is right and it is wrong. He could not sin. This is what theologians call the impeccability of Christ. It was an impossibility for Christ to sin. He has an inability to sin. Why? Because He's the God-man. When the Son of God took on flesh, he, he remained a singular person. He is fully man and He is fully God in one person. He's not two separate persons. And so anything that He does through either nature, through either His humanity or through His deity, it is attributed to His one person. So if He acts in His divinity or He acts in His humanity, we can say that the Son of God did this or did that. Jesus Christ did this or did that because He is one. Therefore, Jesus could not sin. Because if He could sin, that sin would be attributed to God and God would cease to be God. No, his human will had to be subject to his divine will. His wills cannot be contrary to one another. They had to be on the same path. And so Jesus' human nature could not indulge in sin when his divine nature could have nothing to do with sin. But he was truly tempted. The impeccability of Christ, it doesn't actually lessen the temptation Christ endured. It heightens it. Think about it in these two ways with me, if you would. The holier a person is, the greater offensiveness sin is to them. And the greater grief they endure in temptation. And he was sinless. Sinless. Never did he commit a sin in his mind, in a thought. Never in a word from his lips. Never in a deed by his hands or his feet or any members of his body. He was sinless. As you and I think about our temptations, they... They usually start from within, and they're only drawn out by things outside of us. As it's from our heart flows these desires, these inordinate desires that mature into sins and unbelief. But, but Jesus, He had no corruption within. None. 
just pure and blameless. He was not inclined in any way towards sin or evil or wickedness. So all the temptations that Christ endured came from without, but they were no less severe. They were even more severe. Because Jesus secondly felt the full force of temptation in a way that you and I seldom, if ever, do. Why? Because he never yielded to a temptation. Think about it like this. If if a man was entering the ring as a challenger with the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Let's make it better. Let's say I'm entering the ring with the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. I would hazard to guess I'm going down in the first round. I'm hazarding to guess that with the first punch I'm going down. And I've just saved myself from a beating for the next 11 rounds. I don't get the full force. Jesus goes 12 rounds and more. There's no relenting. This bout continues throughout his earthly life. He experiences all the rage of our adversary, all the force of his arguments, all the temptations he can bring to bear, and there is absolutely no relief. None. does not sin. It is only those who withstand a particular temptation that actually experience its full force. And he experienced every one. The full force. And never gave himself over to. When you and I are tempted, we, in our bad moments, we give in. And so the temptation, it, it ceases, doesn't it? It stops. And all that, that that temptation was holding in reserve, it, it wasn't brought to bear. But he never gave in. It just boggles the mind. Never gave in. Never had relief. As the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's not unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because he underwent the fierceness of temptation. Ways that you and I shall never experience in every respect with the full force of the legion of darkness behind him, and he withstood. He withstood by depending on the Word of God, by depending on the work of God, by depending on the will of God, by the Spirit of God. It is this Christ that sends 
the Spirit into the world with His Father. And it is that same Spirit that now indwells us as believers that we can depend upon to fight temptation. And we have this same Word that He has given to us as a sword to fend off our adversary. And we have the same shield of faith to put out and extinguish His fiery darts. But we have more. We have a high priest in heaven who has experienced every temptation. And He intercedes for us. Intercedes for us. Brings His strength and His mercy and His grace to bear for us sinners. And this is all possible because he withstood temptation all his life and lived a holy perfect life as the true Israel of God the second Adam so that he could be our savior now and forevermore that's who's at the right hand of the father that is your Christ that is our savior be to God. Let's pray. Lord our God, we do thank you. Thank you for sending your Son. We give you praise. Oh Jesus, how we give you praise. You who withstood every attack of our adversary in your humanity. And we're willing to suffer the cross so that we might receive glory with you. And how we are thankful that we have a high priest even now who intercedes for us, that understands all of our weaknesses, and so has given us the gift of the Spirit, has given us the gift of the Word, has given us the gift of your presence. we might fend off our adversary and give you glory. Where there is sin that has taken hold and root in this room, would you cause us to turn in repentance and confession and turn unto you? Where temptation has been strong this day or this week or this month, Oh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your Spirit that you would help us to resist. For we desire to give you glory. To be conformed more to your likeness. That we might be more prepared for heaven to come. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.